So let me give you an example of how you can train someone without taking up a second of your time. Have that person listen in on every media interview you do. Have that person listen in on all of your phone calls that you're on. Have that person get CC'd or blind carbon copied on every email that you send out so that they can read what you're saying and how you're saying it. Have that person sit in the corner of the meeting room taking notes. And then over lunch or coffee, they get to ask you questions and you get to talk to them. You do that with anyone for a two-week period and you've grown the shit out of them. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Cameron Herald. And like some of my guests, it feels like I already know him, even though this is the first time we've actually spoken. He was the COO at one of the scaling up poster child businesses, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which was a franchise organization in North America. You've got junk that needs picking up, you ring 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and somebody comes around and clears it away. And that business went from 2 million to 106 million in six years whilst Cameron was the COO. But today we talk about, we talk a bit about that, but we also talk about where he learned his trade, which was a, a college painter's business that he ended up in. And he ended up as a painter and then as a team leader and then as a manager. And, you know, they were hiring, they weren't amazing painters, but every summer they were hiring tens of thousands of college graduates, including Elon Musk's brother. And so he talks about how he gave a reference to Elon Musk for his first startup. He's written a load of fabulous books, Double Double, which is how to double your revenue in three years, which is great. Meetings Suck and How to Fix Them. That's brilliant. Vivid Vision, How to Create an Attractive Vision of the Future of Your Business, which just is all about purpose and how to create purpose and mission and BHAG, which I think is fantastic. I did Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, which he co-authored with Hal Elrod. So fantastic books, great conversation. He's also made it his life's work to honor, promote the COO. So we talk about what's the difference between a COO and a CEO. Is it as simple as sort of, you know, one is a visionary and one is is an integrator or implementer? And he thinks there's there's more nuance to it than that. So we have a, I think, a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. I enjoyed it. And as ever, learned loads. I'm sure you will too. Hi, I'm Cameron Harold. I'm the founder of the COO Alliance and the Second in Command podcast. I'm also the author of soon to be six books, including Vivid Vision and my newest book, The Second in Command. And creating a network the only network in the world for second in commands. Like, why is there only why is there only one? Does the world only need one? Or are you are you in a niche? Yeah, it's not the only one. There's now a couple of others. It's the only one of its kind for sure. Um, we're definitely in a niche, and and I'm hoping that a few more start. You know, there's dozens and dozens of organizations for entrepreneurs, right? You've got YPO and the Entrepreneurs Organization and Vistage and the Genius Network and Baby Bathwater and Maverick and Globe. Like, there's so many amazing groups for entrepreneurs. And then there's all kinds of organizations for marketers and lawyers and engineers, but there's really never been that organization for a COO or for a second in command. And I played the second in command role a few different times in my business career. And I kept showing up at these entrepreneur events to learn and to try to grow as a leader and grow my skills. And oftentimes they were the wrong events for me. You know, I wanted to sit and talk about interviewing and hiring for 12 hours (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and an entrepreneur is like, oh, we need to get all the right people on the bus. And they think that's a discussion on interviewing. Like, So I, I needed to get into the weeds a little bit more. And that's why we started the COO Alliance was a, a place for them to grow each other and grow with each other. 
I know Gino Wickman in EOS talks about the uh, traction, talks about the difference between the COO and the sort of COO, that is his sense of visionary and integrator. Is that is that how you see the difference? Or? No, it's more complicated than that. Gino and I are friends. We're, we've been in a couple of mastermind groups together, the Genius Network and Strategic Coach for years. Um, and there's there's actually even parts of the book Traction that are very similar to my book, Double Double. It came out two years before it. So we line up in lots of ways, for sure. What where I think he misses the mark, and Traction is really good for companies that are around kind of 10 to 50 employees, where I think it breaks down one core area, as an example, is he talks about the integrator being the tiebreaker. I disagree. I don't think one person comes in and makes a vote and swings a decision in one way or the other. I think the second in command's role, the COO or the VP ops, whoever that second in command title is, their role is to actually help the leadership team have good, healthy debate, have the leadership team get into the, the, like really discuss and debate the issues and, and ensure that alignment is created and help them work through conflict together, but not to be the person that swings the vote in one direction or the other. The other thing is that there's different types of COOs, right? There's a Harvard Business Review article that came out about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And it talks about these seven distinct types of chief operating officers. And I go into that in very big detail in my book, The Second in Command, that this it's just a much more complicated role than simply saying you've got a visionary and integrator. It's interesting that you say you go to these, you went to these entrepreneur events. So do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Both. Yeah. So like I I ran my first company starting at 21 years old. I had 12 employees. I, I did a TEDx talk that's on the main TED website about raising kids as entrepreneurs. And then I've played the second in command two or three different times with a couple of large companies. But now I've been running my own company for the last 15 years again. So I'm a bit of a weird, a, a weird one. I can explain how that happened. I got into a franchise organization when I was 20 years old and was taught how to run a house painting business. So at 20, 21 years old, when I had 12 employees, I was executing a franchise manual that was placed in front of me. And, you know, I had to hire everyone and train everyone. But when I left that after running that for three years, I became a general manager with the company. I was in the top 30 people of college pro painters um, globally. Every year we had to go out and recruit, hire and train 800 franchisees. And then in one month, we had to train those 800 people to hire 8,000 painters so they could produce 64 dollars in paint. So I helped build a 9,000 person company from scratch four years in a row. <laughs> so I became very good at operating against a system. Yeah. Like people don't even, have no idea how my background started, but that's where I really learned this. So I have these really deep brain skills to scale. That sounds like an awful business model, like 9,000 people it's every really year. That just, just, it sounds like it's yeah. fine at 20 people, but at 9,000, that just feels like that's just a lot of work. It was very hard. We, we produced $64 million in painting in four months, and then 8,800 kids would quit and go back to university. 60 of us would get drunk, um, and then the next day we would do it again. Oh. So it, I hired Kimball Musk. Elon, Elon's brother worked for me back in 1993 at College Pro, as did his cousin, Peter Reeve, who built Solar City. I hired and trained both of them to be entrepreneurs back in 1993. So, But what, what was good about the model was we understood how to simplify a business back to its very core elements and how to, to avoid all the, the busy work, right? So we became very, very good at the critical leadership skills to scale a business. And we avoided all the extraneous, miscellaneous kind of, you know, the, the big shiny object ideas that people are telling you, you should work on where we focused on the critical few things. Uh, what, are, what are some of those shiny object things that you think are less important or not important at all? Yeah, look at what you're being sold on and, you know, the next 12 things on your feed. Somebody's telling you to buy this course or get involved in this sales training program or hire me to do XYZ in marketing or you should be on TikTok. Or, I, okay, <laughs> but do you know how to hire people? You know, do you know how to coach people? Do you know how to manage projects? Can you manage your own time? Like there's some core elements that, that people need to be good at before we become good at the tactical parts of our business. Yes. So, you know, I don't, I don't worry about how to paint a house. If I, was, if I was obsessed with being the best house painter, I might have had a seven-person house painting company. But we became the world's largest residential house painting company because we obsessed on how to grow people. And, and did you, was your painting, your painting was good enough? Yeah, it was a solid, it was a solid B, right? It was a solid B. 
if we were to really focus on becoming the best, right, in, in having like the, it was the Polish guy who'd been painting for 12 years would kick our ass, but we could outmarket him and we could outsell him and we could outproduce him because we, we focused on what the customer really cared about, which was, you know, really clean people showing up on the job site, having a good relationship with the customer, making sure we didn't trample their flower beds, you know, and, and, and making sure that they felt included in their job. So we really worked on that kind of customer engagement versus, you know, exactly how to hold the darn paintbrush to put on the proper mill thickness coat. And what went in that business? What did you see as the purpose of the organization? Well, one was to make sure that we delivered on our promises, delivered against our core values, right? So it was, it was all of our promises against the customer from what time we were showing up to what we were delivering on the job site to what our interactions were going to be. Well, I tell you what I was, what I was thinking as you were talking is I, I was thinking, I wonder whether you were actually in the business of creating entrepreneurs and that whether that was, because you know, as you said, you know, there were some, there's some famous people who you'd given their yeah. first entrepreneurial start to. And if the business, if the purpose of the business wasn't to be a A plus house painter, which, you know, but is to create allow kids to pay themselves through college and, you know, create entrepreneurs, then, you know, you might have given yourself an A plus at that, whereas the B was a solid B because it just had to be good enough. Yeah. So, so at the end of the day, we used to call ourselves the real world MBA and college pro uh, painters did become the breeding ground for about a dozen different other companies. So we were acquired back in 1989 by a company called First Service, which is now a multi-billion dollar company. And they own... California Closets and Collier's, the real estate company, they're the third largest property manager in the United States. College Pro became the feeder ground for all of the leadership of all of those other brands. So we, we would grow. Yeah, we were, we were really responsible for growing people. Okay. And is that how it started or did that vision emerge? It started when Greg started, Greg Clark started the company off back in 1971 and he and his friends were going to start painting houses and then he went on a trip around the world. And while he was traveling, he wondered what it would be like if he had to franchise the business. And he kind of wrote an operating manual for that. And when he realized that he could teach other people to do it, yeah, his focus became how do we grow people? And he became really my first mentor where creating these systems, I was so f afraid of failing. I just took all the systems that he had developed as best practices and I executed on that and business became simple. Why did you have a fear of failing? Well, I was 20 years old and I had to sign a 67 page franchise <laughs> agreement, which scared the shit. Um, you know, I had to borrow money, borrow money from my dad to buy a van and, you know, 12 ladders and some painting equipment. And I hired, you know, the first summer I hired nine people. And, and then I realized, wow, I hired nine people and I don't have any work for them. So I got to go get a whole bunch of paint jobs. And then I was, and I landed all these paint jobs and I was like, holy shit, now I got to figure out how do I really paint them? Like there was a lot to figure out to, to, you know, to go from zero to a hundred miles an hour, basically over a course of a few months, it was tough. You know, that, that was back in 1986. I did a hundred thousand dollars in revenue in four months. You know, that was, that would be equated to, you know, probably like a half a million dollars in revenue today. There's not a lot of companies that go from zero to a half a million in, in four months as a 20 year old. And so you really were that beneficiary of that real world MBA. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I think about it a lot. You know, College Pro Painters is written up in Elon's book. They reference it because the first round of funding for their company Zip2 when Elon and Kimball were building Zip2, I was a reference for them. They only had one employee at the time and they wouldn't back Elon. His vision was too big and he was way out of the box. He'd never done anything. So they backed Kimball Musk um, on his College Pro Painters experience because he at least had operationalized a business for two summers. And that was really what they, they decided to back. So Kimball called me that night. He said, I don't know what you told them. We only asked for 600,000. They gave us 3 million. That was back in January, 1995. And they later, later sold Zip2 for almost 350 million to Compaq in cash. Very good. Um, you said that building people was really, or growing people was, was the essence of that business. The, the founder of College Pro told me that, that a leader's job is to grow people Another one that he told me was the, the leader has to say no more often than he has to say yes, right? We have to keep people focused on the critical things versus the important many. But yeah, the growing people became an obsession, an obsession for me. That's how I built 1-800-GOT-JUNK was just really, how do I grow the franchisee's skills? How do I grow my leadership team's skills? How do I grow the management team's skills? Because if I could grow them, I could delegate more and only work in my unique ability areas. 
So it, it was always teaching them how to do more and take on more and and basically growing their skill set and growing their confidence both. You'd said you were in genius network and um, strategic coach. Were you in strategic coach then or was, did you join subsequent to 1-800-JUNK? Yeah, I joined strategic coach in 2002 when I was with uh, 1-800-GOD-JUNK and I did their first three years of their, what they used to call the signature program. And then I stopped for, um, I guess, about five years, six years. And when I left 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I went back into strategic coach for a year and did their master's program and then stopped again for about four years. And then I went back in and did the 10X program um, with Dan in Chicago and finished that about two years ago. So I've done seven years in total. Okay. I, I, was, just, I was just thinking whether that was part of the inspiration, because I know certainly that, you know, in that signature program, the work on the entrepreneur and then work on the self-managed business. No, that came later. I guess then the growing people thing must be back to the painters where you were operational, operationalizing the franchise manual. And then you did, you did that again at 1-800-JUNK, didn't you? Yeah, and it was even so the, the first stage was operationalizing the manual. But then my real growth at College Pro Painters became when I was then coaching the franchisees, right? So that's when my real, that's when they really, really grew me. As a franchisee, they grew some of our skills, but they really put that into high gear when we were then, you know, recruiting and coaching franchisees ourselves. So by the time I was 28 years old, I had recruited, signed franchise agreements and trained 120 franchisees. So I'd trained 120 entrepreneurs by 1993. And that was the same year that the International Federation of Coaching and Coach U both started. So business coaching didn't become a thing until 1993. And I'd already coached 120 people by then. So <laughs> we, we were really, really trained on how to actually, yeah, how to grow people. And that just carried on with me as an obsession ever since. And so when you're working with your coaching clients, how do you try to get them to adopt some of your obsession around people? Well, one is I try to show them, you know, hold up the mirror and make them look in the mirror at, at some of their blind spots. You know, I was just coaching a CEO this morning, a couple hundred employees, and I was talking to him about, he was saying, you know, it's tough to, it's tough to, um, to get his people to work on the right things and it's tough to find good people. And I said, well, have you ever had any interviewing training? Like how many hours in your career have you ever been trained on doing proper job interviews? And he goes, well, you know, I've hired hundreds of people and, you know, my team's hired hundreds of people. I said, no, no, that's not my question. My question isn't, have you done it? My question is, how much training have you ever had on actually doing proper job interviews? And he goes, well, now that I think about it, probably none. And I said, you would never send your kid off to play Little League Baseball without teaching him how to hold a bat or catch a ball or toss a ball, right? We would never let our kid go off to play tennis for the first time without teaching him how to hold the racket and hit the ball. So you give them the basics. Otherwise, our kids would come home and say, Daddy, baseball sucks. It's like, no, Johnny, you suck at baseball. <laughs> well, when I told him that, he realized that it wasn't hard to find good people. It was hard for him to find good people because he didn't know what he was looking for and he didn't know how to find it if it was staring him in the face because he'd never been trained on how to do a proper interview, how to do proper reference checks, how to do proper you know, resume screening, how to ask the probing questions and open-ended questions and use a pregnant pause and use torque. So all of a sudden he realized just, you know, in that one core skill, like I launched a course called Invest in Your Leaders to teach people the core 12 basic skills that I think are needed. And that was just one of the 12. And he's like, oh shit, what are the other 11? <laughs> I'm like, dude, you're screwed if I, right? Because as soon as I started to tell him all the other skills, he realized that he'd grown a 200 person company without ever really knowing how to be a leader. Because we never really spend time on that. We spend time on, you know, the marketing or we spend time on the, the tactical part of our business, but not on, on the leadership side. Well, if I'm, I think the difference when I'm coaching, a, if I'm coaching a client and they are maybe a 10, 20 million pound business versus some of our larger clients, either side of a billion, the smaller clients might end up tapping me for some consulting around some area of knowledge. The larger clients, it's all about the people and the people dynamics and leadership, the strategy, sales and marketing, they've got great people there. What, what they haven't got necessarily is the, the team being a team or the ability to have conflict. 
Yeah, you know, the team being a team, big one. Like I, I gave an example today. I said, you know, if you think of a, well, I don't want to use it, the U.S. football team as an example, but it's a, it's a reasonably good one. No, I'll, I'll, I don't even need to go there. Your leadership team's most important team is not the business area they run. It's the company as a whole. You know, your head of marketing's most important team isn't marketing. It's the company as a whole. The head of finance, most important business area is the company, not finance. And you need to get those leaders realizing that when they're coming into a meeting and they're arguing and debating, they're not arguing for their area. They're arguing what's best for the company. They're pushing for what's best for the company. And then they go back to their business area with consensus and saying, hey, this is what we decided as a team. This is what we as a business area are now doing to support that. But if you ever have the head of an area creating the politics and silos, that's a real dangerous you know, situation for a company. And it often starts to happen when you're in the 100 to 300 employee range. And I think one of the reasons it shows up is because the leadership team's too big. Because as the business has grown, there's some people who've been around for a long time. And then everyone who heads mm. up a functional area is on the leadership team. And I've seen people show up here with leadership teams of 12 or 13 people. And so it's like the United Nations and it is people articulating for their function rather than a small dynamic group of people making fast decisions and arguing hard, but, but then finishing with alignment and um, you can't get it, you know, the rest of the organization, even if they might personally disagree with the decision, you know, that sort of collegiate government not being able to get a cigarette paper between them if you if you push them outside outside of the boardroom yeah i agree you know if if we can get the leaders to actually function as a team and to connect as a team and to, to work on growing that's that that really will start to supercharge the organization the politics that start to creep in at that level um it, it's also there because we tend to hire a lot of these managers and promote from within and they hit their, their kind of ceiling of complexity. And it's tough for that, you know, the, it, kind of like the mid-level manager that's never really done this before. Their solution to every problem always tends to be hire more people. Whereas you bring in a seasoned executive who's actually built this before, they don't tend to want to throw more people at the problem. They often want to throw automation and optimization and saying no and simplifying things. You know, their solutions tend to be a little bit more strategic. But that's a skill set we have to develop. And is that that's something you, you definitely need in the CEO. Otherwise, they will condemn their organization to um, throw more people at the problem. Exactly. What else do we need to make this team a team? So not too big compensation model and metrics to align the organization. To, uh, to so they've, got, they've only got one number to, to play for? So the, the compensation. Now, why do you tie compensation models to metrics? Oh, I don't. I've just, I, I, was, I, I was just thinking so often, you know, the sales, head of sales, chief revenue officer, whatever, you know, he's, he's got his compensation goal, which is not the same as maybe the head of finance or the head of customer experience or, or head of HR. Sure. And, and so, you know, they're, they're compensated based on their functional expertise and performance, which just exacerbates the fact that they're not all on the same compensation plan with just one number. Yeah, so let me let me walk through what I believe really aligns, you know, an organization more than anything. First and foremost, it's the alignment with what I call the vivid vision. Right? It's what I covered in my book Vivid Vision, I covered it in Double Double, I covered it in the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. The the idea with a vivid vision is the entrepreneur creating a four or five page written description of what their company looks like, acts like and feels like 3 years in the future. It's basically describing their company in its finished state three years from now so everyone in your company can see what we're building and then they can figure out how to help you build it. So that's where alignment starts. Second is it's really deep alignment with core values where you're willing to fire people who are breaking the core values. You only people who already, you only, only hire people who already live the core values. It's a real deep obsession with celebration and praising people and and focusing on the, the core values on a daily basis. They're not just up on the wall. And you're you're as a company, you have a culture that you're willing to fire people who break the core values. That's that's the second area of alignment. The third area is that driving towards that BHAG, as Jim Collins talks, that big hairy audacious goal. So your BHAG 
is that long-term stretch that really motivates and inspires people. You know, at Apple, it was creating insanely great products to challenge the status quo. Or at Nike back in the 70s, their BHAG was to crush Adidas. Um, you know, Microsoft. So these BHAGs, and by the way, most companies are screwing up their BHAG. It's not a number. A BHAG by definition cannot be measured. It's a long-term 20 to 30-year stretch that from the outside world seems impossible, but inside the company seems plausible. Right At Microsoft, it was putting a computer on every desktop and then later ending every household. Microsoft's BHAG, that's what drove them, but they didn't even make computers. It was about creating great software so that, that people would want to and need to have because they sold the operating system and the software, right? So that's the, set, the third area of alignment is around a BHAG. And then the fourth is around your core purpose, right? Everyone aligned with is Simon Sinek. And Simon used to be on our board of advisors four years before he did his book, Start With Why, and before his TEDx talk went viral. He was on our board of advisors at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. So the idea of a core purpose, mine is to help entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. So that's why I wrote, wrote my, my books. It's why I have the CEO Alliance. It's why I do my second command podcast. It's why I launched the Invest in Your Leaders course. It's why I said yes to being on your pod is it helps entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. But if you were doing a podcast for government or for big corporate or for healthcare nurses, I would have said no. It doesn't, it's not aligned with my core purpose, right? If I, if I, I've been offered to do speaking events for government and for cities that I say no to, I don't want your 40,000 plus travel because it's not aligned with my core purpose. I'd rather either spend time with my wife and kids or, you know, so that's, that's where the real alignment and culture starts from is those alignment with those four areas. I call it kind of call them the four corners of the jigsaw puzzle. I, I, as you were talking, I was, I was thinking we had a client a little while ago and, uh, I, you know, we were doing a coaching call and he said, he, he said, I've got a problem with one of my employees. He said, um, you know, we took everybody's corporate credit cards off them as we rolled into COVID um, so that we had, you know, control over variable expenses. And um, he used his company credit card for Uber Eats on a Saturday. And I said, I don't, I don't understand why we're even having this conversation. You fired him, haven't you? And he's like, well, we haven't, no. And I said, well, is there not any of your core values that this <laughs> that this immediately somebody's used a corporate credit card for his own food delivery on a Saturday? Like I can't. And I was just absolutely in shock. If the leadership team doesn't live the core values, you're really shaking the entire foundation that your business is being built off of. You know, the leadership team, it, you can't have just core values posted on the wall. So it needs to start at the top and trickle down through the organization. It's why they need to be core. I always say that core values should be limited to four or five, not 10. You can have others that are aspirational values, but the core values are the ones that you're willing to fire people on, okay? Second thing is core values should never be single words. They're confusing. Uh, some examples of great core values would be things like deliver what you promise, respect the individual, pride in all you do, have some effing fun, right? They're short, they're easy to understand. They're easy to, to explain to people. They don't need any explanation or sub-bullet points. That's how you know their core values. But most people don't have core values. They have you know something they've put up on the wall to placate a coach or they, they read it in a book, but they're not living them, which is why, which is why business is difficult for them. And Because and the, the moment somebody says integrity and then you don't fire somebody for obvious theft, nobody takes anything seriously. What does integrity mean? Like, you know, say like, it's too confused. The only time I've ever allowed a client, by the way, to have a single word as a core value was their core. One of their core values was simplify. <laughs> I'm like, oh, damn. That's good. That's good. I like it. Because it just fucking made sense, right? Yes. See, I, I see so many entrepreneurs, and it's why I do the work that I do. They're, they're like a fly banging their head on the window, trying to get out the window. And they think if they work harder, they'll get out the window. It's, it's the whole, re you know, there's a door, just turn 90 degrees, go out the door, it's open. Like I, that's why I launched my Invest in Your Leaders course was almost like a desperation plea to give them the tools so that each of their employees can actually get better at their jobs day to day so that you don't have to manage them. You know, I was asked by Fortune Magazine in 2003, how do you hold your employees accountable? I said, I don't. I hire accountable people. Like, I think that happens all the time. You know, I'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, right, we need to motivate the team. I'm like, no, you've got the wrong team. Yeah. And there's an awkward silence. We, we had, a, I had a fantastic 
a two-day session with a client recently. And at the end of two days, the, cl- the, the CEO looked at his team and he said, because we were talking about A players and changing the... They, they reckon that today they've got about maybe 10% A players in their organization. And he said, I've been thinking. He said, we've been trying to solve all these problems the last two days. He said, if all of our people in our organization were A players, how many of these problems would still be problems? None. And that was, that was the answer. They all sat there and went, none. And he's like, okay, well, let's fix that then. Even if, even if you can talent stack your organization where you're all A's, that's, that's extraordinarily hard to talent stack that high where you've got all A's. But even if you can get to you know, 20 or 30% A's and 70% B's, right? A players are the racehorses. B players are the good, solid workhorses. It's just send the C players to the glue factory. <laughs> it's if you get rid of the C's, right? If you get rid of the toxic or negative or underperformers, you don't even need to replace them. The A players and B players will work so hard because they don't have to work with the people anymore. And then you can actually afford to pay a little bit more because you're only surrounding yourself with the A's or B's. Well, do you know, it's that when you were talking about your, the, the person you were talking about, you know, had no interview training, formal interview training for him or his, uh, his executive team. You know, it, again, it's unlikely that that organization has done the maths and worked out what if we hired better people? You know, they haven't got, you know, they haven't done a talent density exercise like LinkedIn, uh, sorry, Netflix, where, you know, let's hire above market. You know, we know that, you know, we know that A players are five times more productive. And even if we pay 125% of market, actually, we're going to end up paying less for an amazing team. We're going to be the SAS or Delta Force or Navy SEALs in, in you know, against our competitors who are all just a bit rubbish, like the Russians invading Ukraine, just demoralized and not very good at it. Mm-hmm. Crazy, right? Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about before we re- started recording was that you, in fact, I'm talking to you and you're in snowy Montreal and your, yeah. all of your worldly possessions are in a bag with you in the hotel. So um, I said I wasn't going to ask you then, I was going to ask you whilst we were recording. So you've sold everything, you've sold your house, your car, all of your worldly possessions, and you and your wife are now traveling the world as, as nomads. What? Why? We got rid of three houses. We got rid of three cars. We got rid of, you know, well, one of my homes also had two guest houses. Um, <laughs> We, so, we got rid of, so we got rid of the places, two places in Arizona. We got rid of one place in Vancouver, got rid of all of our cars, sold all of our furniture. She got rid of all of her Jimmy Choo's and Louboutins <laughs> and 14 watches. We just decided, we just decided to purge. So what, where it started for me, it was about three or four years ago. I, I was just like, I need to get rid of more clutter, like all the shit that's around. I don't need it. So I decided one day that anytime I bought something, I would throw two things out. So if I bought a book, I had to get rid of two items. It could be two books. It could be, you know, a book and a, a you know, a, a t-shirt. Um, and it became this crazy purging process where other than groceries, uh, but I even started doing that where I would, I would just start per- going through cupboards and purging like boxes of shit that was sitting there that I knew I was never going to get to. Or um, And it became this very freeing thing where I was just, constantly throwing stuff out like on a daily basis and then my wife pre-covid wanted to start traveling and and spending more so she started doing a huge purge where she even got rid of all of her photo albums and digitized those and and by watching her starting to purge and feel lighter uh we both started getting excited and then i realized my kids were going to be out of the house both at university and i'm like what am i going to do sit around in vancouver waiting for them and one one decided he wasn't even the school you know, in the province, he was going to go to school in Montreal, which was like 4,000 kilometers away. So I'm like, I'm never going to see you anyway. What am I going to sit here for? So I'm like, I'm just going to start traveling. And that we started traveling and spent about six months. And I realized, why do I even have this place in Vancouver? I've been to for three days in the six month period. So it was get rid of that too. So yeah, I I own three pair of shoes. They're all sitting within four feet of me. (laughs) (laughs) A backpack and a day pack. And, uh, and it's very freeing. So we just travel full time. Yeah, we're off to Israel. Uh, next week, we go to Israel for the month. And then we go back to um, Arizona for a month. And then we're off to Egypt and Dubai. Um, we just continually travel. I know you is hotels, Airbnb, mostly Airbnbs. But if we're shorter than two or three days, then we'll be in usually in hotels. And we always stay in Marriott. So we get upgraded. Okay. So I have like 
you know, big plot with, with uh, Marriott. So every time I just check in, I end up getting put into a suite. So how many countries have you done so far? I've done 64. My goal, my goal years ago was to always have been to more, more countries than my age. And um, so I'm past that. And then my same with my kids, I've got my kids chasing that down, but my wife and I have been to 36 countries together. And, and what is it? The United Nations 122, is it? Or something like that? Uh, it's 193 countries total. Okay. Now that's countries, countries. Like I don't include, when I say the 64, that doesn't include, you know, places I've been that aren't countries. Like there's some, um, like I've been to Antarctica. That's not actually a country. So it's not included in my 64. Um, you know, St. Barth's, the BVI's, US Virgin Islands, Antigua, Scotland, Northern Ireland, those aren't countries. You know, but if I added, if I added those, then I'm at, you know, 70. 71. You're now barred from entry to Scotland. That might be a blessing, but um, now that you've said it's not a country, <laughs> but I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's not a country, though, right? Like I'm, I'm half Scottish, and it's technically, according to the United Nations, Scotland is a. I don't know what the fuck is it called. It's part of the UK. It right? is absolutely. And in fact, there was no, there's been no hard border at all in living memory until COVID, and they because the regulations in Scotland were different to England, uh, they were enforcing their regulations. My one grandmother was Irish, and on her deathbed, she said, don't tell anyone, but Scotland is more beautiful than Ireland. So that was a big <laughs> crazy one. I was like, whoa. She was a hardcore, proud Irish Catholic. I couldn't believe it. So we went to Scotland this summer and went to Edinburgh for two weeks and went to Glasgow for two weeks. And I was really... And then we also did kind of in the north, but God, it's beautiful, man. Yes, absolutely. For the, It is indeed. Will you buy another house and settle down, or is this it? You're going to be nomads forever. We're going to buy two or three places that we're going to have as hubs. Uh, we're going to buy a place in Dubai. We're both setting up our permanent residence and companies in Dubai because of, I'm, you know, they don't tax you on worldwide income as a Canadian. And so we can get 0% corporate, 0% personal tax legally. So I'm going to set up in Dubai. So we'll buy a place there and we'll go there once every, you know, three or four months and then rent it out when we're not there. Probably going to buy a place in Portugal or, um, or Spain on the coast. Um, just have like a, a nice two bedroom, you know, that that's on the ocean that we can go to. Um, and then again, rent that out when we're not there. And then we're, we're toying with the idea of having a place in Bali and, um, and kind of doing the same, so, you know, probably be in one of our places, you know, every few months and then traveling every, every couple months as well. Still that that's probably the plan. Fantastic. And I bet your kids are delighted. They can see themselves as global citizens rent free for the rest of their lives. Yeah, one of my kids is excited because, well, they're both coming over to France to ski with us at uh, New Year's. We're going to ski in the 12 LA. So they're, they're excited. One came and visited in Greece, Estonia, and Denmark this past summer. And how, how old are your kids now? That's pretty cool. My kids are 19 and 21. Very good. Um, Cameron, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I wish that I had actually learned earlier to delegate faster. Because at College Pro, when we were going so fast, we often didn't delegate well. We were just throwing our body at it. And they skilled us up to do a lot of stuff efficiently and quickly. But I think I would have learned to have delegate more. Now, this was in the day where we didn't have, you know, the ability to use, you know, freelancers in the Philippines and text people in, you know, Romania. So, um, but that would have been really helpful for me for sure. I often... Uh speak to managers and say that I think that they've got their life, they've got their, they've got their, they think about their role incorrectly because they, they think their job is to get their team to get all the work done. And actually their, their job is to make themselves redundant, which is that delegate and develop so that you can be promoted. So you can do something else, particularly if you're in a fast growing company, the company won't be able to grow if its managers are stuck. I've been talking to a lot of my clients about that, that the reality is um, what, what I want them to do is to, to rename their to-do list as like, it needs to get done list, but not by me. Yeah. <laughs> and so then people say, well, I haven't got time. Or it's going to take longer to do it. It's going to take longer, so I'm just going to do it myself. So let me give you an example of how you can train someone without taking up a second of your time. Have that person listen in on every media interview you do. Have that person listen in on all of your phone calls that you're on. Have that person get CC'd or blind carbon copied on every email that you send out. 
so that they can read what you're saying and how you're saying it. Have that person sit in the corner of the meeting room taking notes. And then over lunch or coffee, they get to ask you questions and you get to talk to them. You do that with anyone for a two-week period and you've grown the shit out of them. Have your employees, you know, enroll each of your employees for 750 bucks a person, put them into the Invest in Your Leaders course. It's self-guided. Have them learn about situational leadership and delegation and time management and interviewing and running effective meetings. Like have them learn those 12 core skills, which takes no time for you at all. And then go for lunch and have them do a five-minute book report on what they liked about each of the modules. That takes no time. Like the excuse of I don't have time to train someone is a leader that actually what they're really saying is, I don't know how to train someone. That's good. That's actually why it's one of my modules of my course is how to train adults, right? How to set the gap, use a pretest. How like so it's how how do you hit them with the the active experimentation, concrete experience, reflective observation? Like you need to there's a model that you can grow people with. But what what most leaders are saying is they're saying I don't have time, but they're really saying is I don't know how to train somebody, I don't know how to grow them, I don't know how to coach them. And they might be saying something else, which is that I'm scared of what that leaves me to do. Oh yeah. Because I I'm not sure that I have the capability to go further. Or that what what am I going to do if I delegate everything on my plate? Then what's my job? Because that's a huge one for many entrepreneurs. It's also a huge one for many leaders. This fear of am I going to be replaced or am I not needed? Well, I was I was coaching a CEO recently, and uh, he damaged his ankle, and to recuperate he needs to go swimming. That's the only activity he can do. So he should be swimming an hour every day. So he said, I haven't got time. So we went through his diary. Turns out only 20% of what he spends his time doing, only he needs to do. So there's no actual shortage of time. So then he said, well, I'm just worried what my team would think if I took an hour off every day and went swimming. And I said, okay, well, what if you were... Your team would be... <laughs> well, I said, what if you was in your team? What if it was somebody in your team? He said, well, I'd tell them to go swimming. I said, okay. Yeah, I said, I don't know what to do. You know, I've, I've run out, I've run out of rationality here. Now there's something else that, and it, it, you know, there's often it's like smokers, you know, what they can't give up is the social at the back of the, you know, the, the social outside with that group that there, there's something about the bad habit that serves them. And I think sometimes people get, uh, addicted to being busy. You know, they, they are, they're nervous about time on their own or they're nervous about, just not having, you know, spinning a hundred plates. It's also the fear of failing, right? They're really scared of failing and, and they're scared of, of, you know, not being sure how to actually do something, which is normal. So, you know, at the end of the day, you think of every pro athlete, you know, pro athletes have uh, coaches, right? They always have coaches. So an entrepreneur needs to get a coach. We also need to remember that our leaders need to get coaches or be coached, right? We need to put them in through training as well. Don't just grow the CEO. But if, if a leader is making these excuses, it's a really good sign that they're hitting their ceiling and their opportunity is to go get coaching so that they can actually bust through that ceiling and continue to scale. Business isn't difficult. Well, it's interesting. I, as you were talking, I was just thinking, years ago, I used to date a pro volleyball player. And I mean, she obviously had a coach, the team had a coach, she had a nutritionist and she had a psychologist. She had three people trying to make sure that when she turned up to play, she was at her peak. People, any help you can get. Some people don't want help. Yeah, it's so true. No, and I, and I think this is the stuff that people need to actually think about is, you know, why am I making these excuses? Or this is sometimes why they, you know, they can't think of it. They need a, a, you know, a coach or being in a mastermind community will have other people asking the questions. It's really what will free up that entrepreneur to do something better or to free up the leader to do something better. We didn't have that ability to hide at College Pro Painters because they didn't have the time, you know, to, to grow a $64 million company in four months and then shut it down and get ready to do it again we didn't have the time for excuses. Our year was 17 weeks. One week was 6% of our year. Like, you know, I know those numbers because they were, they were hammered into my brain, right? 17 times six is 102, like 100% basically, right? So we didn't have time, like you couldn't miss by a week. That was your whole profit was gone. So I, we became very manic around, you know, what's the root cause? 
And, and really, more often than not, it comes down to a skill issue, right? Or a missing system that needs to be just fixed. Um, so you said uh, you've referenced some of your books along the way, Vivid Vision, Double Double. You said, I think, six, and you've got a new one out or a new one coming out? Yeah, my sixth book is called The Second in Command. It's How to Unleash the Power of a COO. It's coming out in January. And my five other books are Vivid Vision, Double Double, The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, which I co-authored with Hal Elrod, uh, Free PR, and Meeting Suck. Uh, we haven't talked about meetings at all. I really did enjoy Meeting Suck. I thought that was, uh, I thought we had a lot of common ground there. Business doesn't get done. It's just like, why do we do it so badly to ourselves all the time? It's just insane. Well, it's funny, like Elon Musk put a famous tweet out about three years ago, Elon put a tweet out and he said, if you're in a shitty meeting, stand up and leave the meeting. And so I sent him a text message. I said, no, don't tell people to leave the shitty meetings, fix the meetings so that they're not shitty and they won't leave them. Exactly. I often get people to score a meeting at the end of a meeting and, you know, they've been in a meeting for an hour and 90 minutes and they say, it was a five for me. And I'm like, hang on a second, you've sat here for 90 minutes thinking this meeting was crap, but you haven't bothered to tell anybody? Yeah. Why? We have to grow their because we have to grow their confidence that it's it's okay, okay to do that. We also have to reward that kind of speaking up as well, so that they feel confident in pulling the button and stopping the entire line like they do at Toyota, right? Where they reward people for actually stopping the whole production line. But that's sometimes it's a leadership issue as well. It's not always the subordinates issue of why didn't they do it. Sometimes we didn't create a safe space or give them a system to be able to do it. Oh yeah, but in this case, I'm talking about the executive teams in a in an executive team meeting saying, you know, it was crap, and and it's like, well, do you know what? If they haven't got the safe space to say it was rubbish, there is no psychological safety in the rest of their organisation, so nobody else will. And this is that's the you know the behaviours you expect beneath you, you have to be living them yourselves. That's the stuff that Pat Lencioni in Five Dysfunctions of a Team talks about, which is, you know, that fear of conflict and the absence of trust. If that's happening at your leadership team level, you're dead. So there's another one, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. What else, what else is on your, uh, when you're coaching, uh, coaching clients, what, what, what's on your must-read list? Or maybe even what, as you've been traveling, you've read something you thought was great. It's, it's interesting. So what's on my, my what's to read list is very situational because I, because I don't think that if I gave everyone a book right now and said, oh, here's like, I could, could rattle off five amazing business books right now, which I will. But the reality is book number one might be completely irrelevant to 80% of the people today. So for them to read it today is pointless. I think what we need to be doing is reading books or watching videos or getting course content around the stuff that we're working on today or working on this month. So if you're running meetings, which almost everybody does on a daily and weekly basis, you should probably read Meetings Suck before you read any other business book, right? If you're coaching people or running one-on-one coaching meetings, which pretty much everybody does, you should probably read the book, The One Minute Manager, and you should do the couple of the modules in the Invest in Your Leaders course on situational leadership and coaching and delegation. So my, my advice on what people should read or, or content that should, they should learn or course content they should go through is really tied to the situations of what they're working on today. That's why I think the Invest in Your Leaders course is almost like above and beyond everything else is because it's all the executive functioning skills that virtually every single person listening right now probably today we'll use 10 of the 12 skills in the course and they've never been trained on any of them. Okay. But I think it's dangerous. One of my favorite books in the last 10 years is a hard thing about hard things about Ben Horowitz, but it's all about kind of the wartime um, CEO, which we're kind of going into that situation now with stagflation. You know, we've got this hyperinflation period with, with a recession starting, but many businesses aren't in that wartime kind of, you know, my client today is in healthcare and it's, it's never going to go through a recession. Um, so he doesn't need to worry about that stuff, but somebody else might, right? If you're facing layoffs or, um, you know, tough competition, et cetera. Have you read something you have really enjoyed, but that you haven't gifted or given to anybody? Hmm. One, that I've, one that I've never given, I'm now watching the movie series about it. It was a book called Shantaram, which was incredible. Just a, a great novel. Okay. Um, my favorite, my favorite kind of novel of all time that I've bought hundreds of copies and given away is Endurance by um, Albert Lansing. And it's about Shackleton's voyage, which is one of the reasons why I went to Antarctica this past, or this year with my wife was I just needed to see Antarctica after reading you know, the book Endurance. And then fascinating that they found a boat 
you know, so well preserved in, uh, in the water. Yeah, they just found it. It's incredible. The, um, the, the whole story of, of how he and his crew survived almost two years, you know, living on ice flow and living on an island and eating penguin and, and, you know, taking a, a lifeboat and turning it into basically a sailboat and crossing 700 miles of the Drake Passage. Like, are you fucking kidding? Like, none of this shit. And then climbing over this mountaintop that's only ever been done twice since. Like, <laughs> they did this 100 years ago. And here was me last night whinging, walking 10 blocks in snowy Montreal. It's cold out. And I, you know, my down, my down jacket's cold. Fuck. But I wouldn't have survived a minute back. But he left. He left the crew behind with his COO. Yeah. And the crew wouldn't have survived. They wouldn't have been there when he got back if he hadn't had a fantastic number two. Incredible what they did. It's just an incredible, incredible, incredible journey. So yeah, that's, that's just a great, I think a great read for everybody. By the way, I also think that we should actually read less business books, that we should take less content, listen to less podcasts, even though you and I both have one. I think we need to also decompress, right? We need to do stuff for fun. We need to remember that, by the way, you can't say that your work is your hobby because none of your friends want to hear about your hobby then. <laughs> because you don't want to hear about that. Like, if you have a lawyer friend who law is their hobby, you don't want to hear about him talking about law. Or if you've got an accountant friend that he geeks out on numbers, last thing you want to do is hear about accounting. No one wants to hear about your business. So it's not your fucking hobby. Your hobby is your hobby. <laughs> what you do with friends that isn't business is your hobby. Most of us that say that are avoiding pain. We're avoiding something with our spouse or our kids or our insecurities or ourselves, And we're using work as that dopamine rush kind of crutch. And I think it's a very dangerous place to be as a human. Completely agree. Cameron, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Dominic, thank you. This has been fun. Brilliant. Speak to you soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.